we can turn back to Malachi chapter 3, and we can read again verses 16 and 17. Then those who feared the Lord spoke, <coughs> spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and the book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Uh, somebody once said, I think I mentioned this before, but somebody once said we should always pay attention to the three sixteens. Obviously, uh, John 3 and 16 is a very important one, but there are other three sixteens that are uh, quite striking. Um, for example, uh, Matthew 3.16 is about uh, the baptism of Jesus. And Mark 3.16 is about the calling of Peter and Andrew. And we can go through them all if we wish and just find um, that for some reason the 3.16s are quite striking. And here we have another one here, uh, Malachi and this, this particular uh, book uh, that God has. I suppose that raises the question, how many books does God have? He's got um, at least two, because we're told in, as far as the, the day of judgment is concerned, that the books will be opened. Um, and so he's certainly got um, at least uh, two books. Of course, it may be that um, if we want to keep thinking about books, he's got a book about each one of us. I was trying to think about what it would be like for me to actually complete a diary in a year. Never actually done it yet, but yeah, you get um, some diaries and every day is divided into time slots. What you do at 8 o'clock, uh, 9 o'clock, and so on. And if you looked at my diary, you'd think I did nothing. Because there's nothing recorded after January the 1st, which of course is that kind of strange days that record things because it's a day quite often when we don't do anything. But anyway, <clears throat> my diary usually records nothing. But if God's got a book, he's written down what I did at nine o'clock. He's not just written down what I did. He's written down what I thought. And he's written down what I said. And not just at nine o'clock, but also at one minute past nine, and two minutes past nine, 
any time of the day. In his book, that'll be a very big book, you might say, but yeah, but God has books. And there's uh, two that are mentioned in the Bible. There's the book of life. And uh, that one is mentioned there in the day of judgment. But the book of life occurs, um, it's mentioned several times. I mean, Moses actually used it in a, as a petition in his prayer when he asked God to blot his name out of the book of life, as long as the people of Israel were uh, delivered. Of course, God didn't answer that prayer. But, but um, the idea of the book of life has been a, around for a long time. I mean, Moses had it, and there's several other versions of it in the Bible. And the other book that I can, the other one I do remember is mentioned is the one that's here, uh, this book of remembrance. It's like a book that recalls special moments. We've got things like that, don't we? Things like we write down when birthdays are due and wedding celebrations and so on. And uh, God has got his book of remembrance as well, and we'll think about that today. Now, of course, as an illustration, God doesn't have books, really. God doesn't need books. There's not a shelf somewhere in heaven in which are stored all the, uh, all the books of all the billions of people that have lived. God doesn't need books. I mean, if the, if the Bible was written in 2023, the word books wouldn't be here, would it? The, the reason why books were, was used is because they were the largest way at that time of keeping details. I mean, where else could you keep them but in a book? But today, we wouldn't use books, would we? We'd use hard drives. Or the, or the cloud. I mean, you can go up in the cloud and have as many books up there as you want. And the astonishing thing, you can have more books up in the cloud than you have in your house. And yet all the ones you go up in the cloud, they don't weigh anything. You can carry them about in your phone. And you can add to them every day if you want. It doesn't increase the weight of your phone. And even that tells us that it's possible to carry a lot of knowledge very easily. And God, well, he's a lot bigger than any book. His mind is vaster than any book could contain. And his mind is also a lot vaster than any computer. Sometimes you see a picture of the Microsoft stores, as it were, not shops, but where, the, where all their data is contained. It, it covers a very wide area, and that's a lot of knowledge stored there. But it's nothing in comparison to what God knows. But books at that time were the best example of where a lot of knowledge could be contained. And the books that are 
mentioned, the two that I have mentioned, the Book of Life and the Book of Remembrance, they were connected to those in power, to those with authority. I mean, the, the Book of Life is, is taken from city registers. Every city would have a list of the people who lived within it. We get a reference to that in Psalm 87, where God writes down the names of those who live in his city. And Jesus promised uh, the church in Sardis that if those who were faithful to him, he wouldn't blot their names out of the book of life. They wouldn't be thrown out of the heavenly city. They could be thrown out of the earthly city. And that seems to be the point that Jesus is making. The authorities may throw you out of their city. But God won't throw you out of his city. But anyway, the, the idea is that the, behind the illustration is it's one with authority. And the same is true of the Book of Remembrance. Because the Book of Remembrance here, and it's important to note this too, because it refers to the time in which Malachi was written. Malachi, as we, can, as we know, is at the end of the Old Testament, and there's probably no actual um, description given anywhere of the times in which he lived apart from the book of Malachi itself. Because Malachi, he functioned in Israel during the days of the Persian Empire. And therefore, if you're a prophet in the days of the Persian Empire, it would be wise to use illustrations that would be meaningful for people living in the Persian Empire. There wouldn't be much point using an illustration from some other time. But you use a practice that was very well known throughout the Persian Empire. And one of the practices was that the Persian Emperor, if somebody did something for him, he would arrange for a note to be made of that action with the intention that sometime in the future the person that did the good action would be rewarded. You get an example of that in the book of Esther with Mordecai. Mordecai, who um, also lived during the Persian Empire, he overheard people planning an assassination. They planned to assassinate the emperor. And he overheard that. And therefore he was able to warn the emperor and the attempted coup was prevented and so on. And Mordecai's name was written down. We have to do something for him. But the problem was the Persian emperor didn't seem to have a very good memory and he forgot. And one day, or one night we should say, God gave him a sleepless night. And the only thing he could think about to um, pass the time was to get out the Book of Remembrance and look through it and read through it. And as he read through it, he came across this reference to Mordecai and discovered that he hadn't rewarded him. And therefore, he resolved right away to 
reward them. Of course, you read the book of Esther, and we discover that was the same time as Haman was trying to kill the Jews, and the emperor asked Haman, what should I do to the man that the emperor delights to honor? And of course, Haman thought he was referring to himself and made some comment, and like becoming number one. And the emperor thought that was a good answer. So that was a reward that was given to Mordecai. God's timing. But the point they're making at the moment is the illustration is taken from the action of a man with great authority. The emperor of Persia. So that's the book of remembrance. And I suppose it is a reminder to us that sometimes our illustrations have to suit the times in which we live. Don't they? This, uh, this book of remembrance would have made perfect sense to anybody living in the Persian Empire. We may look at it and wonder what it refers to. It's not somebody keeping a personal diary. It's actually a decision of a sovereign to reward a loyal subject. So we can think of that. I just want to do it under a couple of headings. The first one is to ask some questions. And the second one is, what did God do? Or God's response. The questions are fairly brief about this um, action that the Lord wanted to reward, as we're told about there, about this group of people who met to think about his name. And the questions are, there used to be a poem somewhere, I forget what it says, but uses of the words when, why, how, and so on. But they're very useful words for discovering information. When, why, and how. So, when did they do this? That's the first question. And the second one is, why did they do it? And the third one is, how did they do it? As they met together, when did they do it? Why did they do it? And how did they do it? And of course, these three questions should also apply to us. For everything we do, actually, when do we do it? Why do we do it? How do we do it? So when did they do it? Well, you can see that in the first word of verse 16. Then. And the then refers back to the previous verses. Verses 13, verses 14, sorry, verses 13 to 15. And in verses 13 to 15, we find others who are having their conversations as well. Except the conversations described in verses 13 to 15 
are the conversations of complainers. They are having a good old moan about God. And they just say, it's vain to serve him. What's the point? Here we are back in Israel and things are going nowhere. What's the point? We look around and we see that the proud, the arrogant, well, they're just climbing to the top. And evildoers, they don't just prosper. But in the middle of their activities, they deliberately put God to the test. They look him, as you could almost say, in the face. And they dare him to do anything about it. And the difficulty is, as far as these complainers are concerned, is that God does nothing about it. He just lets it happen. And it's in the middle of such assessments being made that these people described in verse 16 do something different. They didn't say and I think this is important, they didn't say, what should God do about it? Instead, they said, what should we do about it? They couldn't do what God could do. But they could do what they could do. And that's very important. It's e easy to say, what can God do about this? That's what these complainers were saying in verses 14, 13 to 15. And all that that kind of language is, apart from being rebellion, it is escapist. It's shirking our responsibilities. It's passing the buck onto the Most High. That's what, that's when they did it. When people were dismissing God. When people were saying he's powerless. He's no longer big enough to deal with the Persian Empire. It's not difficult for us to see applications to our own time, is it? We live in a world where it's easy to complain against God. He doesn't seem to be doing anything He's just letting things go on. 
All we have to do is switch on the television and see people define God to his face. And still, he doesn't step in. We know he's got the power. And we say to ourselves, why doesn't he do something? But then maybe God is saying to us, why don't you do something? Because that's what these people did. That was when they did it. Why did they do it? Well, we're told why they did it there at the end of verse 16. Because they feared the Lord. It was their fear of him that made them do it. Now, fear doesn't mean they were frightened of him. Although there are valid reasons to be frightened of God. If God were to give us what we deserve, if he was just for 10 seconds to give us what we deserve, we would see a society convulsed in fear. But God doesn't do that. The fear that he pleases him is the fear that's described here. And this particular kind of fear, well, it has a sense of awe. It's got a sense of affection, adoration, esteem. As it says in verse 16, they esteemed his name. Esteemed is a beautiful word. It means we look up the way. You can't esteem someone by looking down the way. Whoever, whoever we think is something to be held in esteem, we elevate it. And of course, thinking about God is always elevating. Feeding God has practical consequences. I don't know if you noticed it, but they're described there in verses 5. Where God says, I will draw near you to you for judgment. And he lists a certain number of things that mark those who don't fear him. And the list is approving of sorcery adultery, telling lies, depriving people of their wages, and being cruel to sojourners. These things are the opposite of fearing God. But fearing God will lead to loving him and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And they did this 
because they loved him. They just thought God was worth speaking about. It's possible to have a religious conversation and never mention God. Which of course means it's a conversation without God. They thought about him. They thought about him. How did they do that? Well, it says they spoke with one another. Now, I'm sure most of us, when we read that, the words of the King James Version came into our minds. Spoke often to one another. But the word often is put there because the word spake has got a certain intensity about it. And one way of rendering it would be to speak often. But you could also equally translate it as they spoke earnestly. They spoke with effort. They spoke enthusiastically. And I suppose the word the KGV translated it as often because they continued at it. But it's got a degree of intensity. It's never a casual conversation. It's not having a talk about God at the same level of, of uh, interest as one has in the football results, for example. has put everything into it. Mind, affections, desire to serve him. Think about his character, his commandments, his promises. I mean, there is a lot to speak about. I suppose we've all found ourselves in a situation where we don't know what to say. That should never happen when we're speaking about God. If we don't know what to say about him, we would have to ask how well we know him. These people spoke in this way because the times were serious. They could hear what others were saying, as is described in verses 13 to 15. And they resolved to be very different. They also did it because they wanted to stimulate each other. What's the best thing I could say to someone at any given time? to say something about God. And the result must be it will gladden people to hear that. 
even a very simple thing to say, God is with us. We might assume, or at least I might assume, that the other person doesn't need to hear that. But how do I know that? The onus is always on each of us to say something. Something about God, our Savior, our Heavenly Father, the Good Shepherd. Once we start thinking about what we could say, we discover there's a lot to say. And of course, they gathered together. There's a tendency when the going gets tough to become isolationist. I once heard a a tape, I've mentioned this before, but it really spoke to me. I heard that way back in the 1970s, when lots of persecution took place behind the Iron Curtain. And this man was being asked, or this man was asked, what do you do when you hear the authorities are coming for you? And I expected him to say, Well, we all run and try and hide somewhere by ourselves. But he said what they did is they sought each other out and spent time together. And that's what they did here in Malachi's time. How did God respond? Well, we're told there that he paid attention and heard them. The idea behind paid attention is I once heard a man speak, preaching on this, and his, his comments are never, I still remember them. What's the difference between paid attention and heard? Because by definition, paying attention means you're listening. But there obviously is a difference between paying attention and heard. And this man said that the idea behind paid attention is like what happens when a, you can see it sometimes with an animal when it hears a surprising sound. An attractive sound. His ears prick up. You know, and the Lord has to listen to so much nonsense every day. 
But sometimes he hears something and he pays attention to it. And it intrigues him, we might say. Not because he doesn't know what's going on. But this is so pleasing in his ears. The animal stops to listen. And in a far higher sense, the Almighty God stoops to listen. Wonderful, isn't it? So he pays attention. And he hears. He heard them. What does the word heard there point to? And the man who was preaching a sermon I heard, he said, it's what a mother does with a little infant. I mean, the infant is there kind of gurgling away. And to anybody else, it doesn't mean anything. But to the mother, it does. And our little conversations about God, what are they in comparison to the knowledge that God has? You could get a gathering of the greatest theologians ever lived and put them in the same room. And as far as the knowledge of God is concerned, they're like little infants. They don't know a fraction of what God knows. But even as the mother delights to hear what the noise of the child. God delights to hear the conversations. It's not just the thoughts of his people. He delights to hear the conversations, what they are saying to each other. And he using the language of the kings of Persia, he orders for a record to be made of this. Just say on the, I don't know, 24th of March at 6.22, there they were, speaking about my name, <coughs> esteeming me. Write that down so that I can reward them. And it's all written down. But there is one distance between what God does and what the Persian rulers did. The Persian rulers had to put their books into a storeroom. But God, he puts it 
as he says there, before, before him is in his presence. I mean, God doesn't forget any of it. He recalls every single one of them. I can't remember the time or the date I last spoke to somebody about God. Although I, I know I've done it recently. But I don't remember the exact time or date. But God does. And he says, there's a day coming and I want to reward all of them. But I'm not going to reward any of them until they're all together. And of course we know what that day is. It's the day of the second coming. When God gathers together his treasured possession. And he's just going to mention out of his fatherly heart all the occasions when these, these um, godly conversations took place. And he's just going to say, just to use infant language, he's going to say, I don't know what you made of them, but here's what I made of them. And then we'll discover how important they were. It's going to be a wonderful day, isn't it? Not so much to see as Christians what we'll get, but just to see the joy of the giver as he gives it. Glory. It is interesting, isn't it, that our degree of glory might be affected by our conversation. what we speak about or what we don't speak about. And I suppose the question as we close, the question that comes to us is, what is God writing down? Because as I said earlier at the start, he writes down what happens at 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock. 12 o'clock. And he knows we don't meet together at all these times. But he does know the times when we meet together. And he does take a note of what we speak about. So it's good to speak about God. The God of salvation. The God who pardons our sins the God who gives to us all his great and precious promises, the God who gives us his commandments not to be a heavenly spoil sport, but to give us a meaningful life, 
This is our God. Let us speak about him. Shall we pray? Lord,